This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Well, welcome. Welcome to every single one of you, wherever you are on the planet. Uh, I want to start by telling you about a trip that I made. And no, I don't show slides on the radio of my vacations. Uh, This was a remarkable experience. My first trip to Israel. And I was in a museum in Jerusalem. Well, of course, Jerusalem is itself an astounding museum of artifacts from Christianity and Judaism and Islam from all parts of the world. It is, it is amazing the energy that comes out of not only that city, but also the country. Country the size of Maricopa County, the county where we're broadcasting in Phoenix, Arizona. But I went, and I went primarily to this museum because I had been told some elements of the Dead Sea Scrolls were on display. I never dreamed I would be in that kind of company. But I was, and it was absolutely a marvelous experience that, uh, that was, um, was not only unforgettable, uh, but uh, it was the kind of thing that caused you to say initially, I wonder if I wonder if the Dead Sea Scrolls do tell a story of Jesus in Jesus' time, perhaps chronicled around Jesus' time. I wonder this, I wonder that, and of course we're still wondering, and it's one of the reasons why it is that I bring back to The God Show after all too many years from the faculty of Yale University, John Collins. And John, I welcome you back, but when I want to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, I always think of you. Uh, Tell us about the discovery in 1947. Well, uh, in 1947, so, but actually the year after I was born, uh, the story goes that uh, a couple of uh, Bedouin kids were chasing their goats, and one of the goats went into a cave or something, and that they found a cave anyway, and threw a stone into it and heard pottery breaking. And then, you know, burrowed in there and found a nice jar with several scrolls rolled up in it. And then they brought those into Jerusalem and took them to a cobbler because they figured this stuff was leather. And the cobbler was a man named Candle, and he was one lucky lucky cobbler because he became the middleman then for the Dead Sea Scrolls. But uh, initially in 1947, you see, some of them then were taken to what is now the Albright Institute in Mm. Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. At that point, it was the American School of Oriental Research, right beside the Akal Biblique. And uh, so there were some people there who made photos of them and sent them off to the real William Albright, who was that professor at Johns Hopkins. And he was very excited, and he said, these come from about the second century B.C., 
Mm. And uh, around the same time, some of them were shown to an Israeli scholar named Sukhanik. And this was now right at the point when the Israeli War of Independence was breaking out, or the Arab-Israeli War. And there were pictures of Sukhanik seeing these things pass through a wire fence, through a barbed wire fence. Mm. Uh, But he got some... And uh, some of them then were brought to uh, to the States by a Syrian bishop who put an ad in the Wall Street Journal offering them for sale. How many were there? there. Well, there were seven found initially in Cave One. And uh, they ended up in what is now the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem, which is probably the place you went uh, that's the place where you would have a display of the Dead Sea Scrolls yes. at the Israel Museum. Uh, so these were seven texts in relatively good shape. And they included two copies of the Book of Isaiah, uh, a commentary on the Book of Habakkuk, which was one of the oldest known biblical commentaries. Of course, it wasn't known before this. There was the Rule for Religious Community, which was dubbed at the time the Manual of Discipline, but for all the world like the kind of rule you would have in a Catholic religious order centuries later. And there was a text uh, giving instructions for the war of the sons of light against the sons of darkness. And there was a collection of hymns called Hodeyot. And there was a paraphrase of Genesis called the Genesis Apocryphon, which, uh, you know, hyped up the story a bit. It's <laughs> a long description of the beauty of Sarah, this kind of thing, in Aramaic. So these were the original texts found. Then it took a little while before people realized that there were ruins about a mile away from where that cave was. And that's the site of Qumran. And then there was, that site was excavated. Uh, a Dominican priest, Roland de Vaux, was in charge of the excavation. And he uncovered the ruins of uh, some kind of a community dwelling. And then, while that was going on, the Bedouin went back to work and discovered other caves had scrolls in them. And the most exciting of those is called Cave 4. Uh, you will often see on covers and on articles on the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is um, a photo of something that looks like a lion's claw. It's really a, like a terrace, you know, a flat top, and then there are cliffs dropping off. And Cave 4 is right there in that. So it's just a stone's throw from where the buildings were. And so in that they found, uh, really, that was the main trove of Dead Sea Scrolls. And all in all, there were fragments of about 1,000 manuscripts, Mm. which is, you know, quite amazing. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. You know, this is not a desirable location to live. 
even though at one time there were archaeologists who claimed that the ruins at Qumran were the ruins of a villa, very unlikely. Nobody who could afford a villa was likely to go down to live by the Dead Sea. (laughs) So, you know, the people who lived there were doing it for spiritual reasons. But because of all of the archaeological digs and because of all the exploration, is there a good chance that these might never have been found? (laughs) Well, you know... Uh, it seems that every inch of the land of Israel will be excavated. Mm-hmm. There is so much excavation that goes on. But at the same time, these things were hidden probably about 68 AD. And we say 68 because that was when the Roman army was in the area on their way to Masada and Qumran was burnt. And so we know when that community came to an end. And this they is, hid this... these scrolls, and they hid them very well. They hid them so well that they weren't found for 2,000 years. This is John Collins from Yale University, and we should acknowledge the fact uh, that since you are a son of old Eli, that we should uh, acknowledge the fact that Yale did make an early announcement when it came to the Dead Sea Scrolls, didn't it? They did indeed, uh, because at the time, the director of the American School of Oriental Research in Jerusalem was a man named Miller Burgos, who was a professor at Yale. His picture still hangs in the corridor at Yale Divinity School. And he was the one who put out the original announcement of this discovery. And it was published, you know, in the Times of London and the New York Times, but also in the Yale Daily News. Oh. This this was probably the biggest scoop that the Yale Daily News ever had. (laughs) And they may not even have realized what a scoop they were getting. Even bigger than the whiff and poofs. Yes. (laughs) And John John Collins, we should also acknowledge, as long as we have offered a, a, a plug... Uh, for Yale and its involvement early on uh, with the announcement of of the Dead Sea Scrolls acquisition and its importance. But also, um, we should also say, John, uh, that besides being a part of academia, that you are an author, and part of the legacy that you offer the world and still to all of us who are interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls and that history... Uh, You've written considerably about that. Those books are available. Yes. Well, we should tell tell everybody the titles anyway that they can look for. Well, the most readable of them probably is the Dead Sea Scrolls, a biography. And in that, I go through the whole story of the discoveries and of the controversies that there have been about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, any time that we have an author on The God Show, I always like to let people know, as a service to them, where more information can be available. And I also like to let an author know that people are discovering that there's a book out there for sale 
That isn't yeah. a bad idea either, huh? Not a bad idea at all. <laughs> so that one was published by Princeton University Press, and it just came out in paperback. And Yale allows you to do business with Princeton. It does indeed, <laughs> yes. <laughs> have you found, have you found, John, as you have... Have you have studied to the degree that you are an acknowledged authority on the subject? Have you discovered that there are continuing surprises that are found about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Oh, sure there are. Yes. Um, now, you know, the, there were two great waves of excitement on the Dead Sea Scrolls. The first one was back in the 1950s when they were discovered first. Now, these included copies of biblical books that were a thousand years older than any previously known in Hebrew. So this is a big deal. And it disclosed the existence of what we might call a sect, but some kind of a religious movement, extremists, definitely. These were the people who were expecting a war between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. So that was all very exciting, and at that time, most of the interest was in the light that these scrolls might shed on early Christianity. And, you know, there are a lot of motifs that come up again in the New Testament. But at that time, there were no Jews on the official team of people editing them, because the Qumran was in Jordan, and this was the time of the partition of Palestine. Ah, and then, in 1967, the Israeli army overran that area. And a general in the Israeli army was named Yigal Yadin. His father was Sukhanik, the man who had looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls through a barbed wire fence. And Yadin, the story goes, took some of his soldiers and paid a visit to Mr. Kandor and took up the floorboards and found a, a shoebox with a huge scroll rolled up in it. Mm. This is one we call the temple scroll. Very dramatic stuff. But after that, then you see the scrolls came under the control of the Israelis. And it took a while, but in, by then in the 1990s, then there was a huge burst of publication. And every time you went to a meeting, somebody had a new text or a new fragment uh, that was really interesting. Mm. Now, some of these were texts about messiahs. Some of them were wisdom texts. Some of them were legal texts. There were different kinds of things. But that was really an extremely exciting time to be involved in this kind of work. What were they considered at the time? Was it clear to uh, all of the people who uh, were academic authorities or archaeological authorities, uh, did they all understand the, uh, the profound impact of this discovery? Oh, yes, I would say they did. Though there, there were disputes and even bitter disputes uh, because there were some scholars who did not believe that they were as old as people were making them out to be. Now, I would say by now, everybody accepts that they're old. Another long-running debate was, did they belong to some peculiar sect, 
or were they a more general cross-section of the literature of the time? And now, you see, when they were found near the Dead Sea, people thought of an account by Pliny the Elder, a Roman writer, Mm -hmm. uh, who had described an Essene settlement near the Dead Sea. And that seemed to be a very good match. And also we have accounts of the Essenes in Greek and the rules found at Qumran in this manual of discipline seem to match up very well with the, uh, the rules of the Essenes. But the Essenes, so, the Essenes, John, were not uh, the extremist group that you were referring to before. Well, uh, if, they, if they were indeed the people who lived at Qumran, then they were. Mm. Now, when I say extremist, I don't mean necessarily that they were militant. I just mean, you know, that they had far out ideas. Uh, they had unusual ideas. I mean, they were extremists uh, mainly in the degree to which they wanted to observe every jot and tittle of the law, especially in matters of purity. They were obsessed mm. with issues of purity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were some scholars, you know, who, who were still. Uh, refused to identify this group with the Essenes. But, you know, we have accounts uh, of four movements, really, in Judaism at the time. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots who weren't organized in quite the same way uh, and the Essenes. And of those, the Essenes are by far the best fit. They match up pretty well with what you have in the scrolls. This is John Collins from Yale, uh, the author of a number of books, but we're really talking about uh, his virtually lifelong study of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the book he uh, referred to before about that subject. uh, It's called The Dead Sea Scrolls, A Biography by John Collins. Having studied having studied this fascinating subject for so many years, John, is there, is there one part of it over the years, over the decades, that surprised you the most at the peak Ooh, of the pyramid? Yeah, that, that is a very good question. Uh, because, you know, um, I mean, you kind of grow into the subject yes. in a way. Uh, I did a study back in the 1990s of the Messianic Expectations in the Scrolls. It's a book called The Scepter and the Star. Uh, It's now published by Erdemans. It was originally published by Doubleday. Uh, But uh, in that, what surprised me in that was they really give a quite clear uh, impression of the job description of the Messiah. You know, what were people looking for? And what they were looking for was a big, strong man who would drive out the Romans and restore a Jewish kingdom. Mm. And that was a pretty standard job description for the Messiah. And it leaves you wondering, why would Jesus of Nazareth even apply? You know, he doesn't seem to have been that kind of character. Yes. 
and uh, there, there is a lot of material in the scrolls that that uh, circles around that question. Let's I think one of one of the keys to it uh, is is a text. Uh, this is called uh, the, the Messiah of Heaven and Earth, and it says Heaven and Earth will obey His Messiah, and it goes on then to talk about somebody healing the sick and raising the dead. And now this you do you don't normally get this kind of thing in texts about a Messiah. And I think in this case, the Messiah was thought of as a prophet, somebody like Elijah. And you could see how that would apply to Jesus. And I think that may throw some light on how the followers of Jesus came to think this is the man. And that study is known as Messianism. Uh, and, and it certainly grew and developed in light of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, another text that caused a lot of controversy at that time was one that said, uh, talked about a figure of whom it said, Son of God he will be called, and Son of the Most High they will name him. Mm. Now, that's almost a quote from the Gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. But the text is probably older than the Gospel of Luke. So if there was a quotation <laughs> there, it was going the other way. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, let's, this, you let's, know, had been John, buried in the ground for 2,000 years. John, let's, I mean, the, the, the concept of just simply here uh, electronically discussing the years 68 <laughs> and the years that followed uh, and having actual artifacts, having tangible items that date back to that, that have been studied and studied and studied. Let's talk, though, about some of the personalities involved. The first one, that shepherd, what do we know about him? You know, practically nothing. We just have a picture of him. He was called something the wolf. Uh, But but, uh, he just found them, brought them in, probably sold them for a pittance. You know, the, the, the Bedouin... All the Bedouin knew about the scrolls is that you could get money for them. And unfortunately, at some point, they discovered that if you tore them up into little pieces, you could get more money for them. Because it seemed like you had more material. And they were were Later on, it wasn't necessarily the shepherds, but other people would discover that you could also get money if you forge things. Yes. But they were sold and resold, were they not, John? Uh, There was a great deal of profit that passed when it came to the scrolls. Tell us about that. Well, there there was a certain amount at any rate. Uh, As I mentioned before, this cobbler in Bethlehem named Kando became the middleman. And now I think, you know, initially he probably didn't get anything like what they were worth. The bishop who brought them and put the ad in the, the Wall Street Journal, and he would have made a bit more money, but the value of those things went up and up in time. Now, you see, the ones that were excavated out of K4, the ones that were actually found by excavators, mm-hmm. uh, those were controlled, so those did not go on the market. 
but they have always been rumors you know, that there were other texts out there. And there are people to this day who go around looking for them and trying to find them. And the trouble nowadays is that if they come up with something, there's a pretty good chance that the thing was forged. I heard a story from a scholar uh, a few years ago how uh, a certain gentleman, an antiquities man in Jerusalem, asked some scholars, now, what would you really like to find? And then, you know, sometime afterwards, some things amazingly appeared on the market that were reasonably close to what the people had described. <laughs> so that, that's the world we now live in, I'm afraid. Well, the market and for antiquities seems to be international and unstoppable. I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. Now, you know, <laughs> uh, there is an institution in Washington, D.C. called the Museum of the Bible that has been involved in a lot of controversy over this because they were very eager. This was founded by a man named Green, who uh, was the owner of Hobby Lobby. Oh, yes. And, you know, he spent huge amounts of money trying to collect artifacts relating to the Bible. And I don't think the man was dishonest himself, but he was fooled a number of times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard enough not to be fooled because uh, forgeries, the forgers nowadays are very, very good. In fact, uh, about two years ago, I was at a meeting in Jerusalem and we paid a visit to the Ecole Biblique, which is the Dominican House of Studies. And they, that was really where most of the work was done originally on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, the, the, we saw there a little workshop where they gave classes, you know, in how to write a scroll. Really? Now, you see, I mean, this, has, this wasn't done for the purpose of helping foragers. <laughs> it was done, you know, to teach people the writing. And, you know, I wish I had had a class like that at some point <laughs> in my youth. Uh, I'm sure, you know, you have a much better understanding of the writing if you have actually learned to do it. But I thought to myself, you know, wouldn't an enterprising person come in and take that class and then go back and see if they could find some old papyrus or something to write on? And I'm afraid some of that happens. But the forgeries were not the only uh, semi-dark activities associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls over the years. Let's talk about some of the claims that are associated with the scrolls or those uh, items that were purported to be scrolls. And also some of the conspiracies. Those are interesting. Okay. Uh First of all, in the 1950s already, there was a man on the official team named John Allegro, who was English. Uh, he was, I don't know if he had ever been religious, but at this point in his life, he was atheistic. And he publicized the theory that the, the, the scrolls described a figure called the Teacher of Righteousness, which they do, uh, but that this figure 
was said to have been crucified and to have risen again from the dead. Mm. Now, none of the other editors agreed with that. But Allegro gave a broadcast on English radio, I think it was 1957, and this caused a furore. And then, you know, the other uh, authors wrote condemning this. And eventually he had to leave the team and uh, he ended up on the Isle of Man. I think he lost a lot of his credibility when he published a book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross in which he claimed that Jesus had taken the hallucinogenic mushroom and just revived after a couple of days. So that, that was one controversy. Uh, a bit later on, then, there was a book by, again, two English people, Bajant and Lee, called The Dead Sea Scrolls Deception. And you know, they're really building off people like Allegro, but the claim was because Roland DeVoe was in charge of the operation, who was a Dominican priest, and there were a couple of other priests involved. So the claim was that this was Vatican-controlled. Oh. This was kind of like a deep state theory, mm. you know, that the Vatican was controlling it all and that the real uh, goods in the scrolls would be devastating to Christianity, but the Vatican was suppressing it. Amazing. Now, what gave that legs, you might say, was that the original team of editors was very slow. Now, some of the better preserved scrolls were published very fast in the 1950s. But after that, from the late 50s, uh, the, you know, up to the late 50s, there was a team of scholars in Jerusalem working on these things. And then the money ran out. And so they took jobs, and one of them went to Harvard, and one of them went to Duke, and one of them went to Catholic University, and so forth. And then they might go back in the summer. But if you go back in the summer, then it takes you half the summer to get back to where you were before. And so nothing was getting published. And then a lot of other scholars, and especially Jewish scholars, who had been excluded from this, mm -hmm. became very angry about it and became very impatient. And so there was a huge controversy in the early 90s about this. Uh, and eventually it led to uh, the Israeli government taking over the operation and appointing a new team. Adding to the controversy in that, uh, one of the uh, men who had been on the scrolls team was John Strutnell, who was my own doctoral advisor. Very kind man. But he was bipolar. And he had a drinking problem. Mm. And at some point, uh, a reporter from an Israeli newspaper, when he was high, got him to give an interview and, you know, drew him out and that the, he was quoted as saying that Judaism was a horrible religion that ought not to exist. Oh. Now you can imagine how that played in Jerusalem. Mm. And it caused, you know, he had to resign from the team. He, re, he, had to, he was put on, on medical leave from Harvard where he was teaching. 
because he really was not in any shape at that point uh, to function. Uh, so, you know, that also fed the idea that there was some sinister agenda at work. And, you know, I really don't think there was. There were all sorts of problems. You know, people have problems of one sort or another. People who are good at reading ancient handwriting may not have the best social lives. <laughs> you know, the, the, the kind of skill and personality that it takes to spend your day peering at little unintelligible letters is not going to make you a hit on the social circuit. The word nerd, I believe, comes to mind. <laughs> that too. I mean, nerd would be the least of it, God help us. Uh, there's another man, a Polish priest named Milik, you know, who also developed a drinking problem over the time. But I mean, you can see why. They were living in a very tense place in Jerusalem and, you know, scrutinizing these, it, it requires a, a very intense degree yes. of, of concentration. By the way, I should tell everyone that should they have just tuned in, I'd like to have an excuse from your mother uh, because we don't give tardy slips on The God Show. But the this is The God Show. A couple of Irish guys getting together, Irish-Americans. I'm Pat McMahon. That's John Collins. <laughs> From but Yale. I'm not Irish-American, Pat. I'm Irish. Oh, I, you, you've been here so long, I automatically assumed <laughs> that they had talked nope. you into citizenship. No, oh, like, like uh, well, I am, a, I am an American citizen now, all right, yeah. <laughs> but, but, That's, but I'm still an Irish citizen, too. And I certainly meant no harm. Well, in this country, in this country, when you originate in Ireland, there is a certain familiarity in America that people feel uh, with anyone from uh, from the old country. John Collins, Yale University, uh, talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls and why not among the many books he's written, the Dead Sea Scrolls. A biography, uh, which is uh, still available from Princeton Press. What do we absolutely know is the truth about the Dead Sea Scrolls from the translations of them or from their discovery? Well, you know, one hesitates always to say that we absolutely know anything. You know, it's in the nature of scholarship that anything could be turned over mm -hmm. at some point. But, I mean, we're pretty sure that these scrolls belonged to this religious movement or sect. Now, some of them were written by other people, but these were probably, some people would say, the library of this movement. Now, this movement didn't all just live at Qumran down by the Dead Sea. They were spread around the country. Uh, they lived in smaller communities. My own opinion, though I wouldn't quite claim that I know this for certain, is that when the Romans were coming in the Jewish war against Rome, the people in these various communities took their scrolls and headed to their big community down by the Dead Sea, mm -hmm. which was also the one that was farthest away and the best place to hide their scrolls. 
So I'm sure some of those scrolls were in use at the site of Qumran, but a lot of them, I would figure, were brought from elsewhere, but probably brought there by Essenes, by members of this movement. The main concern of this movement was purity. Mm-hmm. You know, I just got a paper now from a young man who is trying to revive the idea that John the Baptist or Jesus lived at Qumran at some point, and I see no basis for it. Because in the Judaism of that time, you had a spectrum of attitudes. You had some people who thought that purity was the big issue. And you had other people who thought that purity was way overrated. That it's what comes out of a man. <laughs> that, that, uh, uh, that, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not what a person eats. It, it's what they say that mm-hmm. defiles him. Uh, so I think Jesus and John the Baptist were on the other end of the spectrum from these people. Were the Essenes, were the Essenes uh, uh, lowercase Puritans, uh, if you will? Uh, were they uh, were they the intellectuals of their time, the Jesuits? Well, you know, they they were. Uh, I would say more literate than most people. They were, I'd say, among the most literate people of their time, in mm-hmm. all probability. Uh, you know, the fact that they had this quantity of books. In the ancient world, you know, very few people could read. But they had, even if they had a group of ten people living together, they always had somebody who could read, and they would study the books for, for one-third of the night. So I figure, yes, they must have been from, you know, relatively well-off uh, and relatively well-educated people. What of great, then, what know, of great like importance, John? What of, what of really great importance have we in the world, the modern world, learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls that we didn't know at all before their discovery. Anything? Well, um, you know, okay. Uh, the importance you attach to these now, you know, may vary depending on your interests. One of the, the things we learned was what form of the biblical text was current in the time of Jesus. Oh. And we discovered that in many cases, there were different forms of books. No, the text of the book wasn't really finalized in the time of Jesus. It was probably finalized fairly soon after that. But that was one big discovery, the state of the Bible in the time of Jesus. A second big discovery has to do with the sociology of religion. You know, the, the odd ways people behave. The, these people at Qumran, and probably a couple of other places, were like monks, mm. centuries ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't think they had any influence on Christian monks later on, but they anticipated that style of life to a great degree. So that's an important point for the history of religion. And then there are a lot of motifs.
motifs and ideas that come up in the New Testament, uh, some of which I've touched on, you know, like Son of God, he will be called. And you find these were ideas and phrases that were current in Judaism at the time. So, how is that? Well, it, it's, it's something that allows the rest of us who are non-academics in this field uh, to have um, a, a, a clarity that is difficult for most of us to find, even if we have been fortunate enough to be able to see them, uh, see oh, those yeah. that are at the museum. Uh, but I, yeah. I think that many of us who have not made a study but only have read perhaps things journalistically about the discovery and perhaps have read your books. Who owns the Dead Sea Scrolls now or who owns those that we know about the ownership? Uh, the Israeli government owns the great bulk of them. Mm -hmm. You know, except for a couple of scraps that some collectors had gotten hold of, and even those would probably be questionable. I might mention that, uh, oh, 10 or 12 years ago, there was an exhibition of Dead Sea Scrolls in Canada, and I think it was the Jordanian government sued, claiming that they were their property. I remember. Be because, you see, that when they were found, they were in Jordan. But it didn't go anywhere. And, of course, you know, the scrolls are much more important to the Jews than they are to the Arabs. It's, it's their history, you know. But how important are they to the world, John Collins? Well, you know, they're important as a little bit of the past. I think anything we recover of life 2,000 years ago is important. You know, it helps put ourselves in perspective. Now, I mean, having said that, you know, if they're not important the way a cure for the coronavirus it would be important. Uh, this is not something that people are sitting on the edge of their seats waiting for. But for people, you know, who have the leisure and the interest to try to understand life and what it's about, then these are very interesting material because they give us a look at one particular group of people and, you know, how they put things together. Now, we would probably recoil from the way they put it together. Most of us would not want to live our lives the way those people live them. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to know. And, you know, it clarifies some of the options in life. And, of course, the fact that they're throwing light on the time of Jesus is of special interest for anyone associated with Christianity. John Collins, I recognize that we're talking about two totally different discoveries, but I have long wanted to ask you this question, and I know as a fellow Irishman you'll come up with an answer. <laughs> I want to know if you, as a historian, can tell me which you think is the greater discovery uh, from the standpoint of religion and history, the 
Dead Sea Scrolls or the Shroud of Turin? Oh, that's a no-brainer. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Tell me why. You know, because from the Dead Sea Scrolls, you learn something. And you know that you are dealing with actual documents from the time of Christ or thereabouts. The Shroud of Turin, nobody will ever be fully satisfied mm-hmm. that that's an authentic article. And, you know, even if it is, it's a curiosity. You don't learn anything from it. It's just, um, you know, it belongs, that, that there's a television series, Mysteries of the Bible, <laughs> usually accompanied <laughs> but with, with, uh, with, with hokey music. <laughs> that, that's where the Shroud of Turin belongs. But very dramatic narrative, always. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are they okay. not? What, what are they not? What are what are the Dead Sea Scrolls not? They have there have been so many claims. There have been so many uh, suggestions of new discoveries. What are they not? Oh, you know, they are not uh, the answer to any of life's big problems. They are not superior wisdom. You know, their importance is historical. It's not like you found a new philosopher like Plato. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not something of that order. Uh, they are not, they do not give us any direct information about Jesus or his life. You know, they give us some light on the context in which he lived. But that's it. There's nothing, nothing particular uh, about that. Over how many years? A lot of other things that they're not too. Over how many (laughs) years, John? (laughs) You know, they're not. Yeah. Over how many years were they written? Sorry. Over how many years? Over how many years? What were they written? Oh, were they written for two hundred? Oh, that comes as a surprise to me. I think. When they were written, were they considered were they considered to be ordinary uh, passages of historic incidents, or was there something extraordinary about them as they were being written? Well, you know, they were extraordinary for the people who had them. Yes, but they were not widely known. So, you know, there may have been about four thousand people at any given time, who knew of the existence of these scrolls. And for these people, they were extremely important. But it was a limited group, and outside of that, nobody knew about them at all. So, you know, fairly esoteric, but interesting nonetheless. Well, more than interesting to you, having spent so much of your academic life, as a professional, as, as an author, uh, going into such finite detail about the Dead Sea Scrolls. What's the most extraordinary thing to you now that you have spent all of these years looking at them, studying them, 
microscopically looking yeah. at the writings. The, what the most extraordinary thing for me is that you can come up for, uh, these give you enough information that you can see how a group of people lived and thought. Now, you, you have, that's very rare in material from the ancient world. You know, in the Old Testament, you have a prophet here, a prophet there, but you don't have a community described. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the only comparable body of literature would be the New Testament. Mm. Now, this is, you know, if you like, an anti-New Testament. <laughs> it's not so much that it's anti-New Testament, but it's different. It's a different movement. Uh, so that, that I think, is, uh, is pretty extraordinary. Was there something about the times, though? Something about, about biblical times that, that we learned out of these documents? Oh, yeah that we didn't have before well what we what, well the one of the one of the big debates about judaism before they were developed before they were discovered mm-hmm. is you know most of what we had before the dead sea scrolls was either in the bible on the one hand or in the rabbinic literature on the other now the rabbinic literature is mainly about the interpretation of the law of the torah uh, but it was written down hundreds of years later. And so a lot of people assumed that that's what was going on also in the time of Jesus. Then in the 19th century, people discovered a whole set of other writings, like the books of Enoch, which um, you know described a quite different kind of Judaism that was expecting, you know, a final war or had visions of heaven and life after death and all that kind of thing. And so the debate was, which of these tells you what Judaism was like at the time? And the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think, cleared up that question pretty well by showing us that both were current that there was indeed a lot of material there that was like what you get later on with the rabbis, but you also had what we call the apocalyptic material. Mm -hmm. And that's the material that had the visions and that had the expectation of a final judgment and all that. So you had both. You had two strands in the Judaism of the time. And Actually, this community seemed to draw a good deal on both of those strands. In the main, do Jewish historians and Christian historians agree on the authenticity and the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes, yes. You know, the, the disputes are, are relatively minor. Uh, the disputes are, are they really a scene? But, you know, if there weren't a scene, there must have been from a group that were a lot like the Essenes. So, big deal. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the people who thought they weren't that old have pretty well given up by now. So, I think, yes, we do have a consensus on that. Are they still on so display, by the way, John? Are they still on display in, uh, in oh, Jerusalem yeah. in that same museum that I saw? Oh, yes. You bet. 
I think, you know, for a long, well, to, to some degree, they still do go around the world. They take them around and put them on display. But I think that may happen a bit less in future because they realize that these girls get damaged if you take them around, no matter how carefully you construct cases for them and do climate control. It isn't good for the scrolls to travel. You don't mind... People, you don't, you don't, either, I don't know. I know you don't mind your books traveling around the world as long no, as people... <laughs> as long as people pay uh, retail price right, yeah. for things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah. a biography, and, uh, and many other books by our guest, John Collins, from Yale University. How long have you been teaching at Yale? 20 years. And before that, Notre Dame? Before that, at the University of Chicago. Mm. Before that, at the University of Notre Dame. Before that, at DePaul University. You've had a good life, John. And originally at University College Dublin. No complaints. With no only, complaints at all, Pat. With only two minutes, and that's my complaint, that we have... <laughs> Once again, so so little time to talk to someone as as learned and as delightful a conversationalist as you are. But within two minutes, I want to ask you about the book that perhaps no one has asked you about, and that is the next one, the one about the next discovery of more Dead Sea Scrolls. Are there more? Oh. Are there more? You know... There may be. The trouble is that uh, it would be very hard to believe it unless people find them in a controlled excavation in the ground. There are lots of Dead Sea Scrolls on the market at any given time. Now, nowadays, I think the assumption is they're probably forgeries. So, you know, there were always rumors that uh, Yadin and company didn't get everything, and that Kando sold scrolls to other collectors here and there, or that they were holding them till the price was right. But I'd say if they did, they missed their opportunity, because nobody's going to believe them now. But that's not to say, you know, that next summer, some goat herd in the Sinai Peninsula isn't going to, you know, find a cave. And <laughs> that's what makes this thing fun, you know. It's unpredictable. Ah, uh, yes, and so are you. Uh, and and, and that, that's what make, makes our conversations so delightful. Uh, of course, these days, uh, with the fact that virtually everyone on Earth has a smartphone, there will be a call from that goat herder to John Collins <laughs> at Yale University. I thank you for all of us who have had so many questions about the Dead Sea Scrolls. John Collins of The God Show. <laughs>